Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is titled Prime. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. At the turn of the 20th century, a German math teacher named Wilhelm von Osten set out to prove that animals had intelligence close to or equal to that of humans. After a few failures with some animals such as cats and bears, Osten found some success by teaching a horse he named Hans to add, subtract, multiply, and read German. Following years of training, this special stallion began to tour Europe and made headlines in the United States, earning the nickname Clever Hans from curious crowds. Although the horse had proven his superior intellect uh, by tapping a hoof to calculate sums and convert fractions, Von Osten was still under pressure to prove his horse's mathematic mastery was legit. So the owner allowed a group of experts to examine and observe his studious stallion. But they found nothing suspicious. Over time, Clever Hans became a celebrity. That is, until a young psychology student named Oscar Funkst came around. Still suspicious of Hans's supposed intelligence, even after experts had endorsed Hans, uh, Funkst watched the arithmetic act closely and figured out how the horse was doing his calculations. Wilhelm von Osten was sending nonverbal signals to his skillful steed that were so subtle that the owner himself didn't even know he was doing it. The result was Hans could only get the answers to certain problems correct so long as they were simple enough for his owner to solve them. However, Hans's test scores plummeted when he wasn't allowed to face his owner. Unfortunately, when Funkst exposed the truth, Van Osten denied it, insisting that Hans was still clever, and he continued to parade his horse before happy crowds. You know, some people refuse to learn the truth because believing what's false is more convenient. The Lord does not want that for you or for me, and neither does the Apostle Paul. We're continuing our series in the book of Colossians today called Prime. I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Colossians chapter 2. If you uh, forgot your Bible, just raise your hands and one of our ushers can bring one to you. We have Bibles we can loan you. Also want to encourage you to pull out the worship, uh, excuse me, the notes that are in the worship folder you received when you came in. I put together a meaty outline for you uh, because there's a lot that this text talks about. And so I hope it's helpful. Uh, just as a refresher for some of you that maybe have been gone or maybe you're joining us for the first time today, the book of Colossians was a letter the Apostle Paul wrote 
to the church in the city of Colossae while he was in Rome under house arrest for preaching the gospel. While he was incarcerated, a man named Epaphras came to visit Paul in Rome. Epaphras had planted the church in Colossae and needed Paul's assistance evicting false teachers that had invaded the church. And that's what at least half this letter is about. It comprises four chapters, but a good chunk of it has to do with false teachers and helping that church protect or insulate itself from them. The key verse that uh, we've been learning as a church is Colossians 1.18. Colossians 1.18, I think, brings together everything that Paul's trying to say and is, would be the key or main verse in the entire book. Let's read it out loud together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, what Paul is telling us throughout this letter over and over again in different ways, directly and indirectly, is that Christ is supreme. And that because Jesus is supreme, he is sufficient for all things. And because he's sufficient, he should be superior in our lives. And one of the critical areas in which Jesus should be superior is in our thinking. How we think about God. Thus, our big idea for today is this, knowing God's word protects you from the danger of being gullible. Knowing God's word protects you from the danger of being gullible. A few weeks ago, I explained from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, that Paul was in the process of organizing his own Operation Overlord, he was staging his theological assets throughout chapter 1, and then he uses the power of his pen to launch an all-out attack on these false teachers in chapter 2. Just as presidents don't concede to the demands of terrorists, Paul refuses to give ground or negotiate with false teachers. In fact, he goes on the offensive with a series of laser-guided truth bombs designed to take background that was already lost in the church in Colossae and in Laodicea. One of the reasons Paul exhorted the Colossians to grow spiritually, last week we studied that in Colossians 2, verses 1 through 7. So just to give you a little bit of context, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, he exhorts them to grow spiritually. And one of the reasons is, because gullibility is a sign of immaturity. Paul answers now today in verses 8 to 23 of chapter 2, at least two questions that come to mind. First of all, why do we need to be concerned about false teachers? And why do we need to know the key doctrines of the Christian faith well? Now, before we dive into the text today, I should warn you that this passage might feel like it's dripping with PhD-level theology. However, with the Lord's help, I'm going to do my best to make this theological passage practical. Because I once heard someone say, a theologian is a person who talks about things he doesn't understand, but makes it sound like it's your fault. And I, I want to try and avoid that, okay? 
So, having said that, if you would look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, and it's not your fault if you don't understand this, okay? Um, so bear with me. We're going to get through this together. Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Here's the first truth or, that he tells us here, the first point on your outline, number one is this, is that false teaching is still a serious problem. It's still a serious problem. And I, and I say this because I think there is a belief or maybe a, a, a common thinking amongst many evangelicals that, well, you know, that was just a problem in the first century. It's, it's really not a problem today. Well, no, actually, it still is. Paul says, see to it, if you see that in your Bible, uh, some translations rendered a little differently, uh, it's actually the present active imperative for a Greek word that means to look out, beware. It's a word of warning that you would give to someone that was about to step out in front of an approaching car. Hey, watch out, what do do do? And he's saying this about false teachers. See to it. Make sure. Beware. Look out. Well, we'll look out for what, Paul? That no one takes you captive. He uses a word here in the original text for captive that's used in the old, excuse me, in the New Testament. Uh, in New, excuse me, it was used in New Testament times for carrying off plunder arresting a slave, or kidnapping a maiden. There's both pastoral care and prophetic warning in Paul's voice here in these verses. I think J.B. Phillips' translation does a good job of modernizing and paraphrasing what Paul is trying to say here. And so I'll show you uh, the Phillips translation. He says, uh, he renders it this way, be careful that nobody spoils your faith through intellectualism or high-sounding nonsense. Such stuff is at best founded on men's ideas of the nature of the world and disregards Christ. Now, if you've listened to me preach this year, uh, or you've been on our website or podcast, it may seem like I'm constantly talking about false teachers. I kind of realized that this week as I was preparing this message. I'm like, man, you know what? It's kind of come up quite a bit lately, and uh, man, people are going to think I'm just really railing on this all the time. Anti-false teacher, you know? But I just, please believe me when I tell you it's providential, not intentional. The reason they've come up in several of my sermons this year is that they keep coming up in the New Testament. And, and as an expository preacher who's committed to verse-by-verse -verse preaching, I keep coming up upon passages that talk about false teachers. And in order to have integrity as a preacher, I have to say, you know, and explain it. I can't skip over it. Oh, man, I don't want to talk about that again. Maybe I can just get away and go to the next chapter, you know. No, I can't do that and sleep well at night. So I can't not talk about it. How's that for a double negative? And it's my job to explain the text regardless of whether it's comforting or convicting. In fact, the New Testament, and I've been learning this this year as we've worked through 
you know, first, second, third John in the spring, and and then, and then last year, uh, you know, went through Gospel of Mark and and uh, Titus and. The New Testament, I'm learning now as I've been going through and studying and preaching through the New Testament, it's carpeted with warnings about false teachers and false doctrine. Here's a quick list. I just want to show you on the keynote behind me uh, of the New Testament books in which false teachers come up. Did you know this? I honestly didn't know this until I've, you know, the past year I've discovered this. In the Gospels, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and warned his followers about them. Second Corinthians talks about false teachers. Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, which we are here today. Paul warned Timothy about false teachers in First and Second Timothy. Titus, when he wrote Titus, who was in Crete. And by the way, Timothy was in um, Ephesus. So that means there were false teachers threatening the church in Ephesus. There were false teachers threatening the churches on the island of Crete. Peter, in 2 Peter, spends a whole chapter talking about false teachers and false prophets. And then, of course, we learned this past spring, 1 and 2 John. So since most of the local churches mentioned in the New Testament were dealing with false teachers, I think it strongly suggests there are false teachers in every generation, every denomination, and every community. Some have book deals, podcasts, radio shows, and TV ministries, while others are barely known. Some dress like celebrities and have Lear jets, while others don't, and they just dress like us and drive cars like us. False teachers are messengers sent out by the adversary to add to, subtract from, or make substitutions in the gospel because they cannot stop the spread of the true gospel. One of my favorite authors, 19th century British bishop, J.C. Ryle, says it better than I ever could. I love J.C. Ryle. He says, there are three things which men never ought to trifle with. A little poison, a little false doctrine, and a little sin. Knowing God's word protects you from the danger of being gullible. Next, if you would look at verses 9 and 10, Paul says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Here's number two in your outline. Next thing Paul tells us is that Jesus fills his followers with himself. He fills his followers with himself. Now you'll notice on um, the outline, in order to my... My, my best attempt here to make this heavily theological passage practical, I thought it might be helpful if I listed the target that Paul was aiming at for each of these verses. And so I've broken down the next uh, four points with the verses that, that he's using to aim at certain false teachings. And so this one, it's Gnosticism. Gnosticism is a false doctrine that teaches salvation comes through a higher knowledge, not found in Scripture, that Jesus was not human and angels rule the universe. Gnosticism seeks to achieve salvation by thinking. 
The term Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, meaning to know or to have knowledge. Gnostics believe there's a deeper truth that can be found apart from God and apart from the scriptures that can lead to spiritual fullness. That's why Paul is saying, you Colossian believers and those of you in Laodicea, you have fullness already if you know Christ. You've been filled with Christ, so you don't need to seek a greater, deeper fullness in Gnosticism. The problem with Gnosticism is that trying to achieve salvation through man's thoughts, ideas, writings, or visions, undermines, it undermines the sufficiency of God's written revelation of himself through Scripture. Additionally, denying Jesus' humanity would nullify the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Because if Jesus wasn't human, then he can't take our place on the cross for our sins. The Scriptures teach that Jesus was both fully human and fully God. Notice in verse 9, Paul says, In him the whole fullness of deity dwells. So this is Paul uh, responding to the Gnostic lie that there's something deeper or more full that you can experience, a higher knowledge that you can find. Instead of trying to seek fullness apart from Christ, Paul says, You've been filled with him already. Peter called this in 2 Peter 1.4, becoming partakers of the divine nature. It doesn't mean that Christ's followers become God. Instead, it means that when you are born again, believers share in God's nature. It means that they become like God, that, that, that through Christ they can share his moral victory over sin, triumph over death, become like him in character, and have access to him in his power through prayer. Now here's, here's one subtle way that I've seen Gnosticism show up in the charismatic church. I remember when I was in college, a friend of mine, I was a new believer, a friend of mine gave me a tape, uh, a sermon tape, a cassette, and he said, you gotta listen to this guy, he's amazing, man, he's just anointed with the Spirit, you gotta check him out. And, and the preacher, in essence, was saying, you know, if you're not seeing God do enough in your life, get on your knees and ask the Lord to give you more of himself, to give you more Holy Spirit. So I did, because I wanted, I wanted to have all the stories that that preacher did. And he told some amazing stories in his sermon. Well, what I later discovered as I studied the scriptures is that I already had all the Jesus and all the Holy Spirit that I needed. That I, I didn't need any more and I couldn't get any more. Because if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you have all the Jesus you're going to get. You have all the Jesus you're going to need. And you have all the Jesus you could ever want. The only question that you have to ask is, the question you have to ask yourself, does Jesus have all of me? Knowing God's word protects you from the danger of being gullible. I didn't know God's word well enough back then. And as I learned and I studied and I went, oh, that one sermon tape I listened to was false teaching. I didn't need to be praying that kind of prayer. I was believing things about God and the Spirit and how much Jesus I had. They weren't true. 
And man, I'm relieved to find out I got all the Jesus and all the Holy Spirit I need. That there's not more out there that I need to keep grasping for, you know? Like I'm missing out somehow. I just got to make sure he has all of me all the time. Next, if you would look at verse 11, Paul says he moves on to address another group of false teachers invading Colossae in Laodicea. He says, in him, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Here's number three in your outline. Jesus fulfilled the law for his followers. Jesus fulfilled the law for his followers. The target he's aiming at is legalism. There were legalists trying to invade the church and trying to take captive or hostage some of these younger, naive Colossian believers. Legalism is a false doctrine that says you need to earn your salvation through good works or by following extra-biblical rules. Gnosticism, as you heard me say earlier, tries to earn salvation through thinking, while legalism seeks to achieve salvation by working. Because legalists struggle to accept Jesus' gift of salvation by grace alone, through repentance and faith in Christ alone, they still strive to earn their salvation through performance. Just gonna be, work harder and be good enough. Generally speaking, legalism declares that you need Jesus plus something else in order to obtain redemption. The problem with legalism is that it's built on at least two false premises. First, it wrongly assumes that we can even be good enough to earn our salvation. And we can't. We can't be good enough to please God. Legalists pridefully think, and sometimes I think they believe this without even knowing they believe this, they, they, they pridefully think, I would rather earn for myself what God has already offered to me as a gift. Secondly, legalism incorrectly suggests that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was not sufficient to save us. That, that there's, gotta, there's gotta be something more. Gotta, you gotta do more still. So how does Paul counteract this legalism that was infecting the Colossians. Well, what he does over the next few verses is he, he reminds them of four gospel truths. So this is A, B, C, and D on your outline. Um, so he says, letter A, Christ renewed you. He renewed you. You, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. This particular group of legalists were possibly Jewish converts that wanted the salvation Jesus offered, but were having a hard time letting go of the Old Testament law. And so what they were doing was they were telling the Colossians and Laodiceans, well, that's great, you got Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised. You need Jesus plus circumcision. They were called Judaizers. They also, the same group, Judaizers, uh, they, they invaded Galatia as well. Paul spent a good chunk of the book of Galatians 
dealing with this group. Circumcision in the Old Testament was an external mark required by God to be put on every Jewish man as a sign of God's covenant with Israel. It was intended to remind them that they belonged to God and that Yahweh was their God. Unfortunately, the external operation often didn't change the internal heart. And as a solution to this problem, in the New Testament, the Lord required a circumcision of the heart. Meaning that anyone who is cut to the heart, as the crowds listening to Peter in Acts 2 said, it says they were cut to the heart when they heard the gospel preached. So anyone that was cut to the heart by the preaching of the gospel, they can be given a new heart as a new creation in Christ. Or as the New Testament calls it, a circumcised heart. So the mark is internal instead of external. So, so that's what Paul's talking about here in verse 11. He's saying, hey, Jesus renewed you. Next look at verse 12. He, he continues to rattle off some gospel truths. He says, you also were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So letter B is he resurrected you. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, Paul says you were raised with him. In the New Testament, baptism is both literal and figurative in meaning. Sometimes it refers to literally immersing a new believer underwater and then pulling them back up out of the water to uh, symbolize the picture of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Other times, baptism is mentioned figuratively. Excuse me, figuratively. Figuratively is what Paul is referring to here. I think that's what he has in mind here. He's saying, hey, before the believer knows Jesus, they are dead in their trespasses and sins. Spiritually dead, unable to respond to spiritual stimuli. But after the believer receives Christ and is born again, they are resurrected in that they become spiritually alive. They are able to respond to spiritual stimuli, able to have a spiritual relationship with the Lord. And so that's the kind of resurrection he's talking about. You were spiritually dead, but now you're spiritually alive. There's even a reference that he, he makes later in this passage, or it might be in the beginning of, of chapter 3, where he says, you've been made alive in Christ. So, he says, you, the, Jesus renewed you, he resurrected you. Look at verses 13 and 14 now. Paul says, and you, you were dead in your trespasses and, and the, the uncircumcision of your flesh and God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So here's letter C. The third thing Paul tells them, reminds them, excuse me, is that he also reconciled you. You don't need to earn your salvation through legalism because Jesus renewed you, Jesus resurrected you, and he reconciled you. Notice it says in the text, he, he's made it possible that you be forgiven for your trespasses. The Bible describes unsaved sinners as enemies of God at odds with him. 
However, through Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross and the expression of repentance and faith, the believer is graciously pardoned. That's what to be forgiven means in the Greek text. To be graciously pardoned so that his or her relationship with God is restored. To to reconcile means to bring two parties that were at odds with each other, enemies with each other, that had a broken relationship, to bring them back together again in harmony or unity. And that's what Christ did. Finally, Paul tells the Colossians, you don't need to try and earn your salvation through legalism because letter D, he relieved you. Well, how, how, Paul? Well, <laughs> by canceling the record of your debt with its legal demands. He's saying that believers are no longer required to fulfill the Old Testament law to perfection or to make animal sacrifices whenever they fall short of perfection. This is because Jesus removed the burden of of fulfilling the law by fulfilling it for us and then offered himself as a once and for all final sacrifice for sins. So, So Paul says... You don't need to earn your salvation. You don't need Jesus plus something because Jesus renewed you, resurrected you, reconciled you, and relieved you of that burden. So he destroys legalism. Next, he takes on another group of false teachers. Look at verses 18 and 19 with me. Paul says... Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions and puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So here's number four. Making Jesus Lord is a sufficient spiritual experience. Making Jesus Lord is a sufficient spiritual experience. He's targeting mysticism. Mysticism is a false doctrine that elevates subjective, hidden experiences above the authority of Scripture. You heard me say that Gnosticism tries to get salvation through thinking. Legalism tries to get salvation through working. Well, mysticism tries to achieve salvation by feeling or experiencing. Some mystics make no claim to be Christian. They include psychics, astrologists, horoscopes, mediums who try to contact the dead, like using Ouija boards, or even Native Americans who use hallucinogens to contact the spiritual world, or the spirit world, excuse me. All such activities are demonic, and the believers should have no part in them. Still, there are other mystics that claim to be part of the Christian church and part of the body of Christ. They include those who worship angels or try to talk to angels, who claim apostolic authority with dreams or overemphasize visions. However, notice that Paul says in verse 19 here, they are not even part of the body of Christ 
because they are not under his headship. Now, the problem with mysticism is that, and especially in the church, when it gets into the church, is that it makes dreams and visions and feelings and experiences and extra revelations more important than the Word of God. Because we have God's completed Word, we're not supposed to seek dreams and visions or special revelations from God, especially ones that don't line up with His Word. It's extremely dangerous. Now, this is not meant to dismiss the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer or the local church. We know from the Scriptures that the Holy Spirit regenerates. He empowers the preaching of the Word, empowers the believer to live for Christ. He, he guides us in the truth, fills us with his fruit, convicts us of sin, and many other things. The point is, is that the genuine believer does not need extra-biblical revelation or experiences to be saved or to feel closer to God. He's given us his word. He's given us access to him in prayer. He's indwelled us with his Holy Spirit. And the Lord has said through the scriptures, 2 Peter chapter 1 in particular, that these things are sufficient, that he's, his divine power has given us everything to live a life of godliness and righteousness. Now, there's an important phrase I need to um, explain quickly here. I actually, honestly, I almost skipped over this. And just early this morning, I decided I need to put it in because I fear that some of you might be going, why do I need to know this, man? This is like PhD level theology. It's not going to really affect me. I don't like to watch, watch kooks on TV or, you know, do weird, wacky things. I'm pretty simple. I'm just a simple Christian. Why, why, why is this a big deal? Well, Paul gives us at least two reasons here in verse 18. Why? We need to know God's word and not be gullible. Notice he says, let no one disqualify you. This is an important phrase. Some Bible translations get closer to the target than others do. Some render it, let no one pass judgment on you. Now this is not a biblical basis or support for the popular phrase in our culture that I've even heard my teens use. Stop judging me, man. Stop hating on me. That is not where this comes from, okay? And it's not what Paul's saying. Instead, disqualify in the ESV comes from a Greek word that literally means to rob or to, to defraud someone of a prize. What, what Paul is saying, and just for the sake of time here, I'll just paraphrase what he's saying is, not only does listening to false teachers cause you to believe things about God that are not true, but it can also cause you to lose eternal rewards you would have received had you remained true to the faith. Well, how do you know that, Kerry? Because the Greek word that's being used here refers to, well... And again, for the sake of time, I've got to be brief. It's referring to the judgment, like the judgment seat. Romans 14 talks about it, where 
In essence, um, uh, there's language used in the New Testament that describes believers when they die, crossing the finish line, and then their lives are assessed to see what they did for the Lord, and they are given eternal rewards based on what they did for Jesus. If you want to read more about this, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 to 15 is one place you can look. It talks about the rewards given to believers. So what Paul is saying is, if you allow yourself to be gullible because you don't know God's word and you drift off and follow some false teaching, you could forfeit, be defrauded out of, robbed of eternal rewards that you would have gotten. You won't lose your salvation, but for eternity you'll see others who were faithful to the Lord, who did remain true to the faith, enjoy their rewards forever knowing that you could have had what they had. That's what he means by let no one disqualify you. Don't let the false teachers lead you astray. Don't let them dupe you out of your eternal rewards, is what Paul's saying in verse 18. Now, as we get ready to close, let's look at the final couple of verses, verses 20 to 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Uh, verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Here's point number five. The gospel is about relationships, not rules. It's about relationships, not rules. Paul is targeting the fourth group of false teachers invading the church in Colossae and Laodicea here. This fourth group were called ascetics, or they practice asceticism. You see on your outline, the target asceticism, it was a false doctrine that teaches extreme self-denial in order to achieve a higher spiritual experience. Asceticism seeks to achieve salvation by disciplining. So you heard me say earlier, Gnosticism tries to achieve salvation through thinking, legalism through working, mysticism through feeling. Well, the ascetics they try to achieve salvation by disciplining themselves to the extreme. They believe they can get closer to God, please God, or attain spiritual enlightenment by, by living a life of abstinence or extreme self-denial. Examples of asceticism include fasting to force God's hand, living in isolation to avoid temptation like monks. Monasticism is what that's called. It's closely related to asceticism. Uh, other ascetics practice self-mutilation to mortify the flesh, self-induced poverty, or even celibacy. The problem with asceticism is that it's based on man-made rules instead of a God-pleasing relationship. And although Jesus expects his followers to deny themselves, asceticism takes the Lord's command to the extreme. And, and, and requires anyone who wants to subscribe to this 
kind of false doctrine, to do things to themselves that the Lord would never expect of them. So when Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, for example, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, Jesus was referring to a submission to his leadership, even if it included suffering for the gospel. He was not referring to self-imposed suffering and affliction, though. He was not referring to uh, making ourselves suffer even worse and punishing our bodies because all pleasure is evil. No, it's not, it's not what he meant. In fact, the Bible says that the Lord gives us all things to enjoy, 1 Timothy 6.17, and that good gifts come from him, James 1.17. The Lord's blessings should never replace him in our hearts, and they should never keep us from worshiping him, of course, nor should the Lord's blessings become the sole reason that we walk with him. But Paul is trying to say here is that the, the gospel, the Christian faith, is about a relationship with Christ. It's not about enforcing extra biblical rules on yourself. Now, here's the thing we gotta be careful of. Another reason we need to know God's word well is that we can go to the extreme of when somebody says, for example, hey, you know, um, what you're doing is sin, like you shouldn't be doing that thing because God's word says this. If you don't know the word well, you could go to the extreme and say, oh, you're being legalistic, man. Or, or you're, you're trying to make me do asceticism, man. No. That's called discipleship. It's called walking with Christ and progressing in holiness. That's, that's a good thing. So, as we close, here's three applications for you. What do we do with this lengthy passage on false teaching where Paul shoots at these four different groups of false teachers? Here's the first one. I've implied it at least a few times. Read your Bible studiously. Read your Bible studiously. Jesus said in the greatest commandment that it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and your mind. Your mind needs to change. Well, how does it change? Well, the Bible was written not to inform us about God. It was written to transform us so that we gain what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 2, the mind of Christ. Whereas we walk with the Lord and we do our daily devotions and we are in the word, our minds change each week, each month, each year to where we begin to think more and more like Jesus does. That's what he wants. It means that when we do our daily devotions, our goal should not be to just get into God's word, but instead to get God's word into us. And if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you should be learning the scriptures well enough that you can explain them to someone else. And if I could just be frank, if you can send a text message, if you can read your social media feed, if you can read the news on your smartphone or Sports Illustrated, then you can read your Bible and learn to think biblically. 
There is no excuse for any believer in the 21st century with all the resources we have available to us to not read your Bible. And I highly recommend you not read your Bible on your smartphone, by the way. Shut that thing down or don't even turn it on in the morning until you've done your devotions. See, what I like about this Bible is that it doesn't get ESPN updates on scores. I don't get alerts that somebody sent me a friend request on Facebook or a text message from this. I can stay focused and I can learn God's word with a copy of it like this. Now, I have a Bible app on my phone. I do use it occasionally to look up verses, or if I'm out and about, I'll look up a verse real quick because I don't carry this around with me everywhere like some of you think I do, you know, like I'm going to class or something. But, 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 but I, I think it's wiser to do your devotions using a hard copy of the Bible and keep that smartphone shut off. Give Jesus your full attention, man because he's worth it. Just like you wouldn't want your spouse if you were going out on a date night or, or maybe your kids if you're like wanting to talk to your parents about something, you would not want to be talking to somebody that you love, trying to spend time with them, quality time with them, and them going like this. Yeah, I'm listening. Uh -huh. Then why would we do that to Jesus? Yeah, I'm doing my devotions to Jesus. Oh, oh wow, somebody snapped me. Cool. Ooh, I get a retweet. Awesome. Okay, I'm done. Closing in prayer, Jesus. Thanks for the time. <laughs> Here's a second application. Choose what you listen to and watch wisely. Don't listen to teaching that's false or sing songs about God that are untrue. Did you know that there are some worship songs out there on the radio, on Spotify, on iTunes that have bad theology, that say things about the Lord that are not true. I love music, and I always have. One of the things that I had to do after getting saved in college is I had to start weeding out my music library of secular artists and songs that celebrated or encouraged sin, because they weren't good for my thought life. Now, I do like some secular music, and I still held on to some, but I got rid of most of it because it wasn't helping my walk with the Lord to have melodic hooks and choruses in my head that I'd be whistling and singing throughout the day that were celebrating or encouraging sin. Now that I listen to Christian music most of the time on the radio or on Apple Music, I've also uh, had to root out certain songs that say things about God that are not true. And they sound really cool, too. I've really been bummed. There are some songs like, oh, man, I love the arrangement of that song. I love the chord progression. Oh, that chorus is awesome. But the chorus isn't true. Delete. Skip. I'm going to say this carefully. Some of the best worship music available to the evangelical church today is coming from churches that are not strong doctrinally and some that even have false teaching. These churches are also providing some of the worst worship music. And so what I do is I listen to the good songs that they put out because they're good and they're true. And then I skip the bad ones. 
And I'm just saying, be aware, watch out, think. What's this song saying about Jesus? Is it true? Maybe even Google the lyric and you'll find that the lyric might have come from a scripture passage. I've had that happen to me a number of times where I'm singing a song and then I'm doing my devotions and I have a song that I've known for years and then I'm doing my devotions and I go, oh wow, that's where that Chris Tomlin song came from. Man, I didn't even know that was in Psalm 57. That's cool. I'm glad because I like that song. <laughs> it means I can keep singing it because it came from the word. That's happened to me a lot. Thirdly, preach the gospel to yourself daily. In his book, The Discipline of Grace, which I highly recommend by Jerry Bridges, he explains how to do this. To preach the gospel to yourself means that you continually face up to your own sinfulness, then flee to Jesus through faith in his shed blood and righteous life. It means that you appropriate again by faith that the fact that Jesus fully satisfied the law of God, that, that he is your propitiation, and that God's holy wrath is no longer directed towards you. And I would add to what Mr. Bridges says, if you do this enough times, no one will be able to sneak a false gospel by you because you know the true gospel. So, just in review, uh, the three applications, read your Bible studiously. Uh, number two, choose what you listen to and watch wisely. And, and number three, preach the gospel to yourself daily. Not long ago, I stumbled upon a news story that uh, just really gripped me and I wanted to share in closing. It was uh, two weeks before Thanksgiving last year that a Utah family of four were found dead in their home as a result of a murder-suicide. Text messages were uncovered by police revealing that 43-year-old Jessica Griffith believed she was dying from ovarian cancer. And she had been sending messages back and forth with her husband, Timothy Griffith, age 45, about picking a date that would be best for them to leave, along with ideas about how best to end their lives. When a concerned neighbor noticed the family's car hadn't moved in several days, she called police. After the authorities arrived, they found the bodies of the father, mother, and their two children, ages five and 16. However, an autopsy later showed the mother was never sick. She did not have cancer. Now, why would I violate one of the principles of expository preaching by sharing a morbid news story in my closing? Because some people refuse to learn the truth because believing what's false is more convenient. Even when knowing the truth is a matter of life and death. And if that story grieves your heart like it does mine, just imagine how the Lord's heart is grieved when gullible believers that don't know the word well are led astray, 
following false teaching and false doctrines. Knowing God's word protects you from the danger of being gullible because being gullible is a matter of eternal life and eternal death. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, this is a tough passage to preach. It was hard to study it and to understand it. And, and I fear that there are still some listening that, today that still don't understand it. And I, I just ask, please, that your Holy Spirit, please, Lord, would you cause your Spirit to give us the understanding we need, the discernment we need. Father, I... I also just ask, please, that you would show any of us here or listening online that, that maybe have already bought into some false teaching, that already believe things about you or about themselves that are not true, that are not based on your word. Lord, would you reveal that? And would you just sovereignly lead us to Scripture verses that can change our thinking, correct our thinking, so that we do good theology, accurate theology. Lord, would you give us wisdom and insight on if there's anything that we're reading or maybe listening to that's hindering our spiritual growth, any, any music that the adversary is using to to get it into our head, to get us to start believing lies that are not true, maybe from a secular artist or even Christian artist. Please, Lord, give us that discernment so that we can love you with all our heart, all our soul, and our mind. Finally, Lord, we just ask, please, that you would help us to grow in knowledge of your word and discernment. And that, Lord, you would help us to preach the gospel to ourselves daily and to find encouragement in that. Knowing that even when you're not doing what we want you to do, when we're not seeing what we want to see or hearing what we want to hear, that nothing has changed in heaven. And that what you've done for us is permanent. It's not changed either. We love you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.